Good morning, Village Church. Thanks, Gene. It's good to be together. My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's good to be together on first of our new first Sundays. We got some uh, brunch after this. It's going to start smelling like pancakes towards the end of the sermon. I'm going to need you to stick with me. Uh, there's some <laughs> some good stuff at the end. Uh, Village Youth Kids, good to have you guys here this morning. Yes, yes. First Sundays. Hope you had a good time at Denny's. Love Denny's. Uh, good to be together. Good to be in Acts. We're in chapter 16. We've got a big chunk here this morning. It's a place, of course, all throughout the book of Acts where we see the Spirit of God moving and shaping moment by moment as the gospel spreads. Some really significant things that happen in the gospel movement this morning. And we really see clearly in our text this morning just the work of the Holy Spirit as we go. And so we've got a big chunk. We're going to move quickly. We've got a lot to learn together here at Village Church. All right, so let's get going. We've got work to do. Verse 6. Let's read it together. And then we'll uh, get into this, all right? It says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So right away, we see the Holy Spirit is involved in every detail of the gospel spreading throughout the book of Acts. Verse 6, the Spirit forbids them to preach in the Roman province of Asia. Verse 7, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go to Bithynia. In verse 9, a vision comes to Paul saying, you must go to Macedonia. There's a lot of names here, a lot of words. These are either Roman provinces like Galatia, Asia, Bithynia, or they're cities or towns within those provinces like Phrygia or Troas. Troas is the ancient Greek city, home of the Trojans, most famous for the Greek battles, the Trojan horse legend and recruiting violations, of course. (laughs) And... One day Christ will return for his church and restore Reggie Bush, his Heisman Trophy. But, but it's, it's important for us, right, as we read through a whole list of words, right, that these are real places. These are real people. This is historical events. We're in a real time. This is A.D. 51. Macedonia is another Roman province located in modern-day Greece. And so when God calls them to travel to Macedonia, that would be a boat ride from modern-day Turkey to modern-day Greece. Okay, youth kids, you track in with your geography classes that you take and all those fun things? Yeah. This is a country now today. There is still a country today called North Macedonia, much smaller than in biblical times. And to give you a feel for it, they have three athletes competing in the Olympics right now. Very small. But if any of those athletes believe in Jesus, they can thank, of course, the Holy Spirit, and they can probably thank Paul, because it goes back to Acts chapter 16 here, when the gospel is brought to Greece, and on our, really how we describe a map in modern times, the gospel is brought to Europe. And this was a vision from the Lord to bring the gospel to a new place. I think the first thing we see clearly this morning, Acts chapter 16 should strengthen our trust in God's perfect timing. Acts chapter 16 should strengthen our trust in God's perfect timing. God brings Paul to Troas just to give him a vision to leave for Macedonia. And it isn't until A.D. 56, five years later, 
when Paul would actually go to Troas and preach the gospel, and he writes about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And God's timing is not our timing. He brings someone someplace just to tell them you're going to go to another place. And some of you in this room are very high efficiency, high productivity. And the book of Acts just feels like a mess to you, right? Why are you traveling here and there? Why are you traveling north by foot just to receive a vision from the Lord to travel south by boat? Why don't we just go in order, city by city? We need a systematic plan. You're the kind of person who makes a spreadsheet for a theme park trip. <laughs> and we need people like you in the church. Sign up for something. <laughs> We just got out of the Christmas season, and I like Christmas, but there's always one day of the year that's just pure horror, and it's gingerbread house making. As a father of young children, right, it takes about 10 minutes for the kitchen table, and you like think you should be calling FEMA. And <clears throat> but the horror of the, the, the scene is not divided evenly, right? Because the firstborn child is slow and methodical, Step by step, right? What do the directions say on the box? And what's the right way to do this, Dad? And the candy is placed evenly, one space at a time. Very little mess. But the second-born child is like Samson tying the tails of 300 foxes and lighting them on fire to ravage the town, right? Just chaos. There's been a lot of studies done on birth order. My favorite, just quick fact, is that there's 24 Apollo astronauts that have left low Earth orbit and been into space. 91% of them were firstborns. <laughs> Are they smarter? As a secondborn child, I say no. <laughs> but they, they tend to be more methodical, right? They stick to the rules. The secondborns are always like weeded out of the program for cutting corners and like, hey, I figured out we could press all of the landing sequence buttons at the same time and it still works, you know? <laughs> I think when we look at a passage like this, we say, a lot of us have a really firm view of how we think God should do things and in what order God should do things. The Spirit of God is perfectly decisive and perfectly wise, but that doesn't mean that the Spirit of God is predictable or that God's wisdom fits our vision for what makes sense, right? My mind jumps straight to Isaiah chapter 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. The Spirit of God is moving across the earth in the hearts of men, working the ground, working the soil. We don't know what God has in store for our lives. Go north by foot, now turn around, go south by boat. And what do the disciples of God say? They say, all right. And God says, just worry about following me day after day, and I will put the pieces together so that one day you will look back in awe of what I have done. And God can do this in the life of a single person. God can do this in the life of your family. And God can do this in the life of our church family right here. Amen, Village Church? Yes? Yeah. We're the spirit-filled people of God. Let's keep going. We're going to Greece. This is a boat ride from Turkey to Greece. Very expensive today. Back here, not so expensive, okay? Verse 11. 
Setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. So Philippi is the big city of the province or the district, the Roman province of Macedonia. Just for timeline's sake, um, if you were to say, has Paul written his letter to the Philippians yet at this time? No. It's a small community here, small community of people who believe in God. He will return here in Acts chapter 20, which is about five years later, and he will really plant the church and establish the church, and then he will write the letter to the Philippians 10 years later, in around 61 AD, from prison in Rome, okay? Look at verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who had heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is an incredible moment because we know from Paul's letter to the Philippians 10 years later that we have a thriving, joyful church community. But at this time, not only are there no Christians in Philippi, but there aren't even enough Jewish people, believers in the true God, to even have a synagogue. A lot of commentators comment that, you know, the requirement for establishing a synagogue in a city was you had to have 10 Jewish men. And so most theologians would look at a passage like this and believe there's probably numbered less than two Jewish men in the whole town. But there are some worshipers of the true God who gather at the riverside for a Sabbath prayer service. And here Paul is bringing the gospel to Europe for the first time, and Lydia would become the first convert to the gospel in Europe. And this didn't have any geographic significance on the modern day map. This is just all Roman Empire. But for us, this is incredible. You think about all the work that God has done in Europe throughout church history. You think about all the incredible believers and missionaries and pastors and theologians from Europe that have been saved. And this is the first Christian in Europe. It's incredible. We're given a few specifics of information about Lydia. First, she was a worshiper of God. And second, she she needed God to open her heart to hear and receive the gospel. It says that really clearly, that God opened her heart to receive. The story of the gospel reaching Europe, the story of Lydia, I think is kind of the story of what we find in Romans chapter 10. Look at this with me. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? In the book of Romans, Paul gives this progression to say, we got to preach the gospel. We got to be sent. We got to send people to preach the gospel. And yet, look at how many people all throughout the Bible hear the gospel but don't have ears to hear. We see it in the gospels, we see it in Acts. And so our mission as Christian, ultimately, it's going to lead to spoken gospel truth. But we are desperate for the Holy Spirit to make the ground fertile, to make the soil good, to open the eyes and the ears and the hearts, right? 
Look again, the end of verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Lydia believed the gospel not because Paul worked really hard to get there and travel there, not because Paul was eloquent in his sermons, not because Paul had organized great community service projects, not because their sanctuary had lots of cool stained wood that is very, very affordable yet stylish like us. (laughs) She believed and she was saved because the Lord opened her heart, right? That's what the Bible says. People need to hear the message of Jesus, and yet we know that Jesus himself spoke the message of Jesus to thousands who heard it and did not believe. Second thing I think we see clear this morning is that our calling is very clear, it's very simple, and yet it is entirely dependent on the Spirit of God. You believe that, Village Church? This statement is true about our calling to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. This is also a true statement about our calling among our friends and families and our calling to gospel and disciple the children in our living rooms, right? We are dependent on the Spirit of God in this. And what that should mean for us is that we are a people of prayer and dependence, right? And it's okay to be a dependent people. In fact, that's the best way to live. And so Paul continues in prayer. And here comes another Holy Spirit moment. Look at verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, it's great, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So we see a second woman now. This time, not a worshiper of God to hear the gospel, but someone who's possessed by a demon and abused by others as a source of profit. And she shouts at them day after day. And this isn't the only example in the New Testament of the demons know, the demons know the truth. They know these men are preaching the truth. But our author, Luke, he doesn't focus much on on her and whether she's saved or whether she joins the church. What we do see is that the slave owners are furious. And look at the heart of the healing of an afflicted girl is a disturbance to our city. (laughs) She's a slave. Her purpose is to generate wealth for us. She has no value outside of this. That's such an evil way to view another soul, right? Her only worth was in the profit she could bring to us. And so 
their hearts can only be angry because they only love themselves. And so Paul and Silas are arrested and beaten. There's no trial, there's no defense, just the brutal treatment of non-citizens in the Roman Empire, except that they were Roman citizens. And so here comes another moment of the Holy Spirit, and not so much of a surprise. It's, they're back at it with the prayer. Someone could have told Paul, like, dude, your life could have been a lot more boring if you just stopped praying, okay? But he just keeps at it. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. That's like a big no-no, okay? You don't let your prisoners escape. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. And so you see the progression here, right? That God literally shakes the earth and the hearts of men are shaken. And in the moment when you lose control, you fear for your physical life, you experience a holy fear of God. And it becomes more clear that your spiritual life is far more important. And like we see all throughout Scripture, the miracles of God validate the gospel that's spoken. The miracles are not the gospel. The miracles are not the goal, not the purpose. But it brings the heart to a place where there's only one question left to be asked, and it's what we see in verse 30. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Right? The heart is brought to that question. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. What's the third thing we see here, Village Church? I say don't underestimate how quickly God can turn things around, right? The Spirit of God is weaving together each of our stories moment by moment, and we don't know what tomorrow could bring. And so a man of faith, like Paul, can stand in that prison and look at the prison guard in the eyes, look, tomorrow morning, you might get to chop my head off. Or tomorrow morning... I might be baptizing you. <laughs> Either way, I'll be in my cell worshiping God and praying, and I can't wait to find out. <laughs> Sleep tight. This is what the gospel does for us, though, right, Village Church? That Jesus has saved us from our sins. He's given us the promise of eternity in heaven. We have nothing to earn. We have nothing to achieve. We can live with incredible freedom to pray and trust and find peace in situations that, that have no, no reason for peace, right? Look at verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go, therefore come out now and go in peace. <laughs> 
But Paul said to them, they've beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. Do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. (laughs) It's a pretty cool moment, yeah? I love Paul's confidence here. He says, we're not leaving quietly. That was injustice. Come take us out yourself publicly for everyone to see. Christian men are not weak men. Christian women are not weak women. We don't talk nicely and play nicely with others all the time for no reason. Christians don't put up with abuse. They're not submissive to unjust cruelty. Even though they are willing to suffer. Paul was willing to suffer for the gospel. He's not willing to suffer for the sake of these men's pride, right? Christians don't stay silent in the sight of foolish leaders and evil abuses of power. Think another thing. Christians are willing to suffer for the gospel. We still fight injustice when we see it or when we experience it. We know the truth. We know where we're going. We know that this is all nothing compared to Christ in eternity. And yet, we don't submit to every evil. We don't back down from every fight. We certainly don't surrender our children to a world and a culture that hates them, right? I think this reminds us too. Like, <laughs> there's a lot of evil out there. We don't just submit to it. Satan wants to destroy our kids. Satan wants our kids to question their value, their identity, their gender. Satan wants moms buried in comparison with each other. Satan wants our dads buried in sports scores and (laughs) things of life that are meaningless. We don't bow down to these things. We speak boldly against things that are a threat to us and we, we defend people who have been done injustice. Loving the people of this world, wanting non-believers to be saved doesn't mean that we appease all of their unjust evils and assaults on us. God's people seek righteousness and justice for all people in all places, in our homes, in our churches, in our communities. I think a lot of Christians are wasting their lives trying to keep bridges intact that they should have just burned a long time ago, right? We don't have to get along with everyone. We don't have to treat everyone as if they can treat us in any way, right? I read this really interesting quote um, recently, and there was a, somebody was interviewing an Amish guy. And I, I don't know if you guys do, you know, read a lot of Amish stuff. I, I'm big on it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> He's interviewing this guy, and he was—I think he was like the leader, a uh, head head Amish guy. And um, but and he was asking him, like, why do you choose this life of no technology and this and that and this and that? And the guy and the guy said, you know, if you surveyed a bunch of parents and you asked them honestly, if you got rid of your TV today, would it make your family more healthy? 
the survey results would be a resounding yes, right? But the difference between our culture and your culture is that we will actually do it. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> now, I'm not suggesting you throw your TV away. Youth kids, I would never do that to you, okay? Certainly not before Super Bowl Sunday, right? <laughs> but the point is that the spirit-filled people of God have to be willing to do big things to protect themselves, to protect their families. We are not weak. We don't bow down to the things that are trying to steamroll us. And we don't submit to getting trampled on by this world and the things that threaten our minds and our hearts and our souls. And we should resist them where we can as we walk in humility with the gospel and as we love people, right? As we wrap up our passage this morning, we've seen the Holy Spirit moving day after day, moment after moment, through cities and places. And When I think about a spirit-led life, my mind goes back to the Israelites wandering in the desert and the Spirit of God leading them day after day. And There's the moment when God says, I'm going to feed you with manna from heaven each day. And don't try to store it up. Don't try to hoard it. Just know that I will feed you enough for each day. Exodus chapter 16, God says, I'm going to feed my people with bread from heaven, and the people can gather it daily. And what will this be? It will be a test for them. Living in my daily provision will be a test for them. Life in unity with the Spirit of God does not give us predictable outcomes. It does not guarantee our plans will come to fruition. But life in unity with the Spirit of God, it promises our daily provision. That's all it promises, right? Paul doesn't wake up every morning and say, I'm not sure if I should follow Jesus today. This feels like a really rough town, you know? He wakes up every morning, he preaches the gospel to himself, and he believes if Jesus died for my sins, if he was raised to life, if, if Christ sits on the throne, then I can give him this day, and it will be worth it one day at a time, right? In Village Church, we can live like that, right? Maybe you've had a friend or a family member in a crisis, and you said, I just got to get there. I got to sit with them, you know, like, like Job, except that you're a good friend, Right? So you get in your car and you drive for hours and you sit with them face to face just to tell them what you know they need to hear and what you believe God wants you to say. And in the end, like nothing changes. <laughs> Maybe you've had a moment like that. What it means to live a spirit-filled life is not that you get to fix everything how you think it should be fixed. The point of a spirit-filled life is that the Spirit of God who was with you in the car ride on the way over, giving you the strength that you need to do what you're called to do and say what you're called to say, is the same Spirit of God who's with you in the car ride back, giving you the comfort that you need as you feel the weight of, like, defeat, right? Does that make sense? I think we can waste our life looking for the God of outcomes when we could be delighting in the God of perfect provision in all things, right? Being a youth pastor, you always feel this pressure to like make big change for your students' lives, right? And you can prep for one big sermon the first night of a retreat and you think, this is the one, you know? 
none of these teenagers will ever sin again after they hear this one message, right? This is the one that leaves them all in tears, pouring their hearts out to God. And it's like, maybe, (laughs) maybe not. Maybe this will just be another moment of God cultivating the soil of hearts, right? And so you give your sermon and it's like, eh. (laughs) But then three months later, you find out that a student met with one of your volunteer leaders at a coffee shop and just kind of poured out their heart. And you find out the student was like, yeah, I mean, it all started at that retreat on the first night when David preached that one sermon. I remember thinking, this sermon is so bad. I really need to read the Bible for myself. And that's when God started speaking to me, right? (laughs) Let's read this again, Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Acts 16 gives us just a tiny glimpse into the missionary life of Paul, day by day, ups and downs. One day you're preaching the gospel and it's being received and you're making converts and planting churches and the next day you're arrested by a mob, you're beaten, you're tortured, you're shackled in a prison. And then the next day, you're baptizing the prison guard. And the common thread that weaves throughout this whole roller coaster of a chapter is prayer. Verse 13, prayer. Verse 16, prayer. Verse 25, prayer. And the ultimate reality that weaves through all of this is that God is on the throne. And so we have hope. Amen, Village Church? Yes. Christ is alive. Our sins are paid for. We get to live by the Spirit each day. And God reigns over each day. And all the things that truly matter are the things that cannot be taken away. All right? Would you pray with me? God, we delight in these stories. And they happened many years ago. And yet we are encouraged by them. And we're encouraged by the faith of Christian men and women who walked before us and, and trusted the same God that we're trying to trust. And they weren't perfect and we're not perfect, but you are perfect, God. And God, we just delight in getting to follow you. You're a good God to serve and to know and to love. And God, we just ask that you would make us a spirit-filled people, that we would delight in you as you deserve that our days would be filled with trust in you in whatever circumstances. (laughs) We would believe that you can alter history at a moment and, and so we wouldn't be shaken by the things around us. We just ask that you'd build us into a church family that knows these things deeply, loves each other deeply, and delights in you together. In Jesus' name, amen.